So there are words in the English language that unless you really have context for them, you have no idea whether they are positive or negative. It really could go both ways. We kind of have a habit of taking negative meaning words, at least in the last maybe 20, 30 years, we have this habit of taking negative meaning words and using them to describe something incredibly positive, right? Uh, let me give you some examples. Ethan is sick. Man, Ethan is sick, yo. Okay, a totally different meaning for, for sick there. Um, that guy who sang the national anthem destroyed it. That guy who sang the national anthem destroyed it. Okay, it can mean either way. You're not sure unless you have context, unless you've heard it. Um, the title of this series is another example. Reckless is not the most positive word. All right, it can be pretty negative, in fact. You can get a ticket for reckless driving. Uh, you can go broke by spending your money recklessly. But someone who lives life to the fullest without fear of consequences is described courageously as living with reckless abandon. Uh, and that's why I chose this word for this sermon series on the life of Peter. Is it a positive, though, or is it a negative? And the answer when it comes to Peter is a wholehearted yes. If there's a character in the pages of Scripture who has higher highs and lower lows than Peter, I'm not sure who it would be because Peter is a man of extremes. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that kind of draws us to Peter as a character. We can relate, can't we? We can relate to who Peter is and his struggles and yet his successes. Um, we mess up and we say, well, Peter blew it too. You know, we set high goals and say, well, if Jesus could use Peter... You know, I mean, it's just kind of, we can relate. He's an everyman. He's somebody that we can all connect with. And so for the next eight weeks or so, we're doing a deep dive into the life of Peter with all of his highs and all of his lows that we're going to visit the mountains and the valleys with him. And so uh, I hope you're ready to go on a journey together. Let's kind of look at the first one this morning. And that is that there's really one big question that society needs to ask and find an answer for. And it gets kind of talked about in some circles regularly, and that is, can human beings really change? Can human beings really change? Can people really change? Is it possible to take a criminal and make them into a law-abiding citizen? Can you take a perpetual, habitual liar and turn them into a truth-teller? Can you take someone who is immoral at their core and cause them to live pure? Can human beings really fundamentally change who we are? And in today's culture, there's several answers that are given to try to answer that question of can humans change. One is behaviorism. Um, behaviorism says that we are really the product of our environment, of what's going on around us. And if you have the right kind of combination of rewards and punishments, you can make people change. You can cause them to become a different person. It sounds great, but it's complete nonsense. Uh, there have been people in a perfect environment. Adam and Eve come to mind. They had it pretty good, and they blew it in a big way. So their environment isn't what caused them to go off the rails. Everything was good around them. Now, there is some truth to behaviorism. I, I agree with some of it. That's why we spank our children. Okay, is because if we make disobedience painful, we're going to get a better response out of them in the future. And that usually works when they are young. It works a little less and becomes a lot more awkward once they are older and they become as big as daddy, then it's really strange. Okay, if I threw Eli over my knee, that would be a little weird. Uh, just saying. Uh, behaviorism is not the answer for transforming behavior as we grow. So what about education? 
uh, one of the greatest philosophers in history, Plato, said that the reason that people do wrong things is because they don't have enough information. That's basically what his conclusion was. Because people essentially keep doing what they think is right. That's what Plato asserted. And that may be correct if you say that people do what they think is right in conjunction or in relationship to their own selfish motivation. Sure, I think that's probably true. But certainly people do not always do what is truly right because inside all of us are those desires uh, that sometimes are so strong that all the rational considerations are thrown out the window and we just do whatever we feel like doing regardless of the consequences. We've all got that monster inside of us that rises up from time to time. So you can educate people, but it still does not fundamentally change them. And as I look at the world and where it's going, every time I read or listen to or watch the news, I do it with a heavy heart. I don't know how anybody can watch the news and not just feel a burden. Uh, my heart breaks for the world that we live in today because culture doesn't know what to do. They don't have an answer. And that we can do with, all we, we can do with our rising crime rate and with all of the abuses that are taking place in society and the breakdown of the family in our culture is all we can think to do is create more prisons with more court systems because it's all we can figure out to try to fix the problem. And we're helpless in seeing people change from the inside out. And yet that is precisely what Christ came to do, to transform us from the inside out in our helplessness, in our weakness, Jesus came to change what we could not. Jesus came to change what we cannot. We are completely incapable of making that transformation aside from the power of Christ at work within us. And the passage of scripture I want to look at this morning is the first chapter of the Gospel of John. That's John chapter 1. In case you didn't know what first means, John 1. Uh, John is next to the Jordan River here in this uh, passage. Uh, John the Baptizer, not John who wrote the Gospel of John. Uh, so John the Baptizer is next to the Jordan River here, and he's teaching, and he's baptizing, and he's preaching this message of repentance, and this is kind of what his, his role is at this point in history. Uh, as he said, I am preparing the way. He's preparing the way for Jesus to arrive on the scene. Uh, his cousin. And as he was standing there, two of his disciples looked at Jesus as he walked past, okay? And John said, look, there is the Lamb of God. Previously in verse 29, he had said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So this is how John describes Jesus to his disciples, to his followers, who are, you know, hanging on his every word, trying to become more like John. And what I want to look at is a passage uh, from John 1, 37 to 42 are the verses we're going to look at today. When John's two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. Now, John had more disciples than two, but the two of John's disciples here in this passage heard this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus looked around and saw them following. What do you want, he asked them. They replied, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and see, he said. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon when they went with him to the place where he was staying and they remained with him for the rest of the day. They, so what happens is they spend the day with Christ and they became believers. They, in that moment, they believed in Jesus. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of these men who heard what John had said and then followed Jesus. Andrew went to find his brother Simon and told him, we have found the Messiah. That's how I knew that they had become believers, because they went, uh, 
Andrew went to his brother Simon and said, hey, we found the Messiah. This is it. This is the guy. I've spent the day with him. I've vetted him fully in, you know, eight hours or so, and he is the Messiah. Then Andrew brought Simon to meet Jesus. Looking intently at Simon, Jesus said, your name is Simon, son of John, but you will be called Cephas, which means Peter or rock. And I want us to take a look at this passage this morning because it is a huge statement concerning Jesus' ability to change people. Okay, this is where Jesus is introduced to Peter and there is this moment that takes place there. But it's the beginning of the rest of Peter's life. It's like you've heard this is the first day of the rest of your life. This truly was the first day of the rest of Peter's life because this moment changed everything for him. And not just Jesus' ability to change people, but to change them forever. And remember that John was baptizing here, okay? And Andrew is one of John's disciples. He's the one who's helping. He's kind of coordinating the lines and getting people into the water. And he's working with John in baptizing people, this baptism of repentance that John is teaching, which is different from the cleansing rituals that the Jewish culture had typically followed. This is kind of a new paradigm that John is teaching here, that we need to repent of our sins. And this baptism was kind of reflective of that. And obviously it pointed to the future and what Jesus was going to do. And so Andrew is very much involved in John's ministry of baptism, right? Uh, And Andrew is the brother of Simon Peter. And here's the thing. I don't know anything in the New Testament that points to the birth order here of these two boys. But my guess, if I had to look at their personalities, Peter is almost certainly the firstborn in the family. Okay, Uh, Peter asks more questions than all the other disciples put together. He's the one who attempted first out of the boat to walk on water. He's the one who made the great confession. He's the one who says, even if all men deny you, I will never deny you. And then he did. Uh, And he meant it when he said it. Uh, He's the one who ping-ponged back and forth between great strong faith and then huge doubt. That was Peter. You always knew what Peter was thinking because anything he was thinking, he was saying. Nothing stayed up here. It always just came out. Andrew, on the other hand, I'm thinking is probably more middle child territory. He's never seen preaching any sermons. He's not kind of the forefront type of guy. He's always in the background. But here's the thing about Andrew. He is always bringing people to Jesus again and again and again. Here he brings Peter to Christ. In the sixth chapter of John, he brings the little boy with the lunch to Jesus. Andrew is the one, and a miracle takes place. In the 12th chapter of John, there's some Greeks that are saying, we want to see Jesus. And who is it that brings them to Jesus? Again, Andrew is the one who brings them to Jesus. And someday in the future, when we substitute the next best thing of North Texas for the glory of heaven, uh, we're going to find that Andrew is going to be up there receiving I think, incredible reward that God has for his faithfulness. Simply a ministry of bringing. And I've seen ministry programs in my years as a pastor called Operation Andrew. Maybe some of you have heard of programs like this. And basically these programs are designed to train people to help bring others to Christ, just like Andrew brought them to Christ. It's a ministry of bringing. It's a ministry of building relationship and bringing them uh, to meet Jesus. And here we see in this passage the greatest privilege that we as human beings get to experience after knowing Jesus. That's number one. This is number two, to bring somebody else to Jesus and the greatest miracle possible taking place in their lives through their encounter with him. 
There is no greater joy in my life than seeing people come to faith in Jesus. And that includes my marriage to Melissa, the birth of my children, everything that I've experienced in life. Nothing tops seeing someone's life transformed by the power of Christ. And if you have never had that opportunity personally of praying with someone and seeing them make that commitment to to give their lives to Jesus, man, I'm praying for you. I am praying for you that you have that opportunity to build that relationship, to speak into their lives, to allow the Holy Spirit to speak through you, to develop that relationship to the point where you have the trust factor established that you can invite them to make that decision, to cross the line of faith, to give their life to Christ, and to actually be able to pray with them as they give their heart to Jesus. There is nothing else in life like it. You know, Cain asked the question early on in the Bible, sarcastically, am I my brother's keeper? And what he meant was, don't look to me for responsibility. But Andrew, he realized that he had a brother and he was his keeper, that he did have a responsibility, that me meeting Jesus and discovering that he's the Messiah was not for me. And he brought his brother to the right place. He brought him to Jesus. Note this. He didn't bring him to the Jordan River to be baptized. He didn't bring him to John. Okay? Even though that's his ministry, he brought him to Jesus. And so I want to challenge you. If there are people in your life who are struggling, if there are people in your life who need help, before you go to medication or before you go to programs or counselors or life coaches, introduce them to Jesus. That should be our first option, not our last resort. Before anything else, we go to the foot of the cross. And now I want to look at the passage, see how Jesus kind of introduced himself to Peter. So this is is kind of the main content this morning. John 142, looking intently at Simon. Guys, I can't even imagine what that would have felt like. This is Jesus, creator of the universe, savior of the world, looking intently at Peter. I don't even know what that means for Jesus to look intently at someone, but I know I probably would have crumbled. Looking intently at Simon, Jesus said, your name is Simon. Now, there are three truths that are demonstrated here that every one of us needs to know today, and I want you to remember each one of these because together, collectively, they have the power to change you forever. And the first is Jesus knows who you are. Jesus knows who you are. Simon The name Simon comes from the Old Testament name Simeon, which means to hear. And so what he's saying is, Simon, I know your ordinary name. I know what your parents named you, uh, but I'm going to be renaming you in just a moment here. And I know the significance of that name. By the way, the Greek word for Simon means flat-nosed. I don't know whether that has anything to do with the way Peter looked, but if I were him, I'd be pretty stoked about a name change. And Jesus said to him, you are Simon. I know your name in advance. And I want you to just hear this this morning. Jesus knows your name. He knows your character. He knows all of the hurt that you have endured, all of the injustices that have been done against you. Christ knows you thoroughly, totally, and completely. He understands and knows the harassment that you endured this past week, not just from coworkers or family, but even from demonic powers that are against you. He knows all of the things that you try to hide. Jesus knows it all through and through. He says, I know you, Simon. 
He even knew Simon's background. He said, you are Simon, son of John. Jesus knows where you have come from. Some of you were brought up in a home where there was no father or might as well not have been a father. You may not even know who your father is. Maybe you're adopted. But I want you to know that Jesus knows it all. Christ knows you and he knows you intimately. There's an old gospel song that says, when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. Probably just Ken and I know that song. But <laughs> when, I want you to think about that phrase for just a second. When he was on the cross, I was on his mind. Just let that sink in. When Jesus endured the greatest suffering that we can possibly imagine, he was doing it because of and was thinking about you. You were on his mind. We need to be reminded of that fact sometimes. Because some of you have gone through an incredibly difficult week. Some of you have gone through an incredibly difficult year. For some of you, it's a decade. And your heart seems to be breaking and you say, God, where are you in my pain? Where are you as I go through this? And I want you to know that Jesus knows you completely. He knows all of the circumstances that led to you being here today, hearing this message. He understands your background. He knows who you are, and he knows where you've been. The second thing that Jesus knows is this. Jesus knows what you can become. He knows who you are. He knows your name, but he knows what you can become. And here the Bible says you will be called Cephas. Cephas is the Aramaic word for Peter, and the word Peter means rock. What Christ is saying is, Peter, I'm renaming you. And when they rename someone in Bible times, it's a lot different than if I were to say, hey, Pastor Ken, from now on, I'm going to refer to you as Pastor Todd. Cool? All right. Thanks, Pastor Todd. Uh, in the Bible, God frequently renamed people whenever he changed their character. Or whenever he gave them a promise and gave them a greater goal to live toward, he would rename them. He would change their name forever. That's why he took Abram and renamed him Abraham, the father of many nations. And you remember Jacob in the Old Testament when he wrestled with God. The word Jacob means deceiver, cheater. And Jesus said, I'm renaming you. You are no longer going to be called Jacob. You are going to be called Israel, which means triumphant with God. And Jesus said, in this moment, Peter, I'm going to give you a new name, Rock. And what comes to mind immediately when you hear Rock is strength. Peter is going to be one who is going to bless many, many people throughout his ministry. There's going to be such a transformation of character that will eventually take place in Peter that will impact tens and hundreds of millions of people throughout all generations. He's not only the one who preached those great sermons that are recorded for us in the book of Acts, although those were amazing. He's not only the one who was involved in so many different missionary journeys going out and developing the early church, but he's also the one who gave us First and Second Peter in our New Testament, books that have blessed the Christian church for thousands of years and helped to grow us and form us. And Jesus saw it all and said, Peter, right now, you may be this sand dune just blowing all over the place, but you are going to be a rock. And Christ gave him something to live up to, something to look toward. Jesus renamed Peter and gave him strength in place of his weakness. 
Now, what else do we think of when we think of a rock? Yes, yeah, strength, but also durability, permanence. Rocks aren't going anywhere anytime soon. Rocks are around long after the sand washes away. And so let me ask you this. If I were to say to you, when is the last time that the name Peter occurs in the New Testament? And so you might, you know, think about it and guess, well, maybe 2 Peter, because after that, Peter's no longer mentioned in the Bible. And technically, you would be right, but I want you to know that Peter's name, even though it is not spelled out, does occur even in Revelation chapter 21. Because in Revelation 21, at the very end of the Bible, we have an awesome picture of this glorious holy city that comes down from God out of heaven. And it says in verse 14, the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones and on them were written the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. I mean, think about it. Your name will be Rock. And here we have the foundation stone of the new Jerusalem, the new holy city. And Peter's name is written on one of those stones. Talk about permanence. Forever and ever recorded in this holy city. Peter's name is there as one of the foundation stones. And of course, Andrew's name will be there. Name of Judas won't be there because Judas was never really an apostle. He was not a real follower of Jesus. He never really believed in Christ. And that's why after he died, they had an election to take his place because there needed to be 12. There were supposed to be 12. And those 12 names will be there and Peter's will be there among them. So here is Peter being brought to Jesus by Andrew. And then Jesus says to him, you are Peter. What Jesus already knows in his heart is that he can already see Peter. And his name as one of the foundation stones in the new Jerusalem at the end of our timeline. Jesus sees whom he is going to become. So let me ask you something this morning. This is something I want us to think about. Why is it that Jesus told Peter that? Why is it that Jesus gives him that new name? Why not wait? Why not wait till he grows into it a little bit and then say, hey, you know what? I think you've earned this. Here's the new name. Why did he rename him? It's because Jesus was saying to him, Peter, I want to give you hope because there are going to be times when you will be buried in guilt. There are going to be days of failure. There's going to be days of pain. And I want you to know that I have a plan for your life that is great. It's beyond anything that you could come up with for yourself. This plan is wonderful, and that plan will be accomplished. Peter, I believe in the transformation that I am working in your life right now and will continue to do. You see, one of our problems is that we sometimes see people, and even ourselves, only at a specific moment of time. We have no idea who and what they eventually will become within the plan and the, and the will of God. You see, it's impossible to predict whom God is going to use in incredible ways in the future. Some of the least likely become the most important in God's kingdom because Jesus sees things in people that others may not see. I've had that happen. I've, I've looked at people and I've, sad to say, I've written them off. I said, yeah, they're never going to mount to anything. They've thrown their life away. It's not going to happen, and I give up. And man, I hear stories later of how God is using them in mighty ways, and God has transformed their life. And in my weakness, I gave up. In my weakness, I turned my back. In my weakness, I said, no, I'm short-sighted. But God sees the potential. God sees who he wants you to be. He sees things in people that others may not. So first of all, Jesus knows who you are. Secondly, he knows what you can become. And thirdly, Jesus has the power to make the difference. 
Jesus has the power to make the difference. Seneca was an ancient philosopher who cried out in desperation once, and he wrote this, Oh, that a hand would come down and rid me of my besetting sin. I need some help. Now, this was not a Christian philosopher. This is just a philosopher who just recognized that they were messed up and struggling. They said, I need help. And maybe not in those exact words, but I think just about everyone who's ever lived has thought or said something along those lines. I need somebody to rescue me from me. I need help. And Jesus is able to do that, and he can do it because of who he is. Jesus can save us because of who he is. First of all, it says in verse 29, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And again, of course, you'll notice it was repeated then in a few verses, behold the lamb of God. And that term lamb of God is significant because in the Old Testament, many, 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 many lambs were killed and there were lambs slain for Israel, but there was never a lamb that was sacrificed for the whole world. You see, there were lambs that were sacrificed that covered sin, but no lamb was ever killed that could actually take away sin. God had put this mechanism in place, the sacrifices that would be made annually, and and the high priest would go in, and he would make the sacrifice to atone for, to cover the sins of the people. But Jesus, here's the difference. Jesus died once for all. There doesn't need to be an annual deal for Jesus. He died one time. He came back to life. He covered all of sin. In fact, he eradicates sin from our life. We don't become covered. We become new. We become new creations in Christ. And the Bible shows us that our greatest problem is sin because we are cut off from God. We are separated from him. We can't deal with that on our own. Paul spells it out for us in his letter to the church in Rome. Romans 3.23, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. And that sounds ominous. And it's even more ominous when we get to Romans 6, where he says, for the wages of sin is death. So we've all done it. And here's the penalty. There is a moral gap between God and us, and we need someone to wipe the slate clean. We need someone who can take God and man and bring us back together. The biblical word for that of bringing God and man back together is reconciling, of fixing what is broken, because there is a huge gulf of sin between us and God. We can't bridge it. We can't get across it. We can't close the gap. You know, we look at it and say, well, they're better than me, or they, he's better than her, or man, they're, they're such a good person, and it just doesn't matter how good we are. The best illustration for that I've ever heard is, you know, I may stand here and I can jump, you know, I don't know, seven feet, eight feet, you know, if I get a good running start. And then you get somebody who's an Olympic long jumper, they can run up and they can, they can soar. And, you know, I don't even know what Olympic long jumper jumps, but they jump far, okay, much further than me. And see, here's the thing. It doesn't matter if we're talking about a half mile gap that we have to cover. Yeah, he's going to jump further than me but we're both going to fall. We're not going to make it across, no matter how hard we try, no matter how far we can jump. So you may be better than somebody else, or they may be better than you, or I may be better than this guy, but at the end of the day, not one of us is capable of making that leap, of crossing that sin gap between us and God. Only Jesus is qualified to do that. He can come, he can make us clean so that we can belong to God forever. In fact, the Bible tells us we become one of his family members, joint heirs with Christ, adopted sons and daughters in the family of God. And someone once asked Billy Graham a trick question, or they were trying to trick him. And he said, Billy, are you saying that if Hitler received Christ as his savior before he died, he would go to heaven? 
but a good, sane, decent person who doesn't accept Christ is going to go to hell. And it was intended to make the gospel appear ridiculous. I mean, what could appear to be more foolish than to say that a good, sane, decent person who doesn't accept Christ is lost forever when a wicked tyrant who slaughtered millions can be saved just because he believes in Jesus Christ as his Savior? And the answer to that question is absolutely yes. And the reason that it is yes is God says, I place so much value on the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And I think so much of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross that I can even forgive a Hitler who believes in him. But I cannot forgive a good, sane, decent person who rejects Jesus. That's how much value Jesus has. Some of you are sitting here this morning and you are carrying a huge weight of sin. There is an answer, the Lamb of God who takes it away. Even the worst sin you can imagine, because there is no sin you can commit that cannot be cleansed by Jesus Christ. The sin has not been invented that Jesus cannot forgive. So Jesus can make the difference for us because of who he is. He is the Lamb of God. And then secondly, Jesus has that ability because of what he is able to do in our lives. First of all, because of who he is, but second of all, because of what Jesus is able to do, the change that he can work in our lives. John 1.12, but to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become, here's what I just referenced earlier, children of God. To all who believed him and accepted him. There's a transformation that happens when we respond to Jesus. Jesus wants to rename every one of us just like he renamed Peter. And the way that he does it is to get us to admit who we are so that he can change us into who he would like us to see us become. But that will never happen. You will never change into who he would like to see us become until we get to the place where we can admit who we are authentically. I mentioned earlier the story of Jacob. And one of the reasons that the angel wrestled with Jacob is that Jacob was finding it so hard to say who he was because the word Jacob means deceiver, and Jacob didn't want to admit it. That's tough to admit. To get to that place where we kind of vocalize, whether it's to God or to someone else, and last week we talked about confessing our sins one to another. If you haven't listened to that message, I encourage you to go back and listen to it because that's a challenging message. Uh, but we get to that place where it's really difficult. The words kind of get clogged in our throat and they don't come out when we want to get to that place of admitting who we really are and where we struggle. But when we are willing to admit who we are, when we're willing to admit our sins and open our life wide to Christ, that's when, piece by piece, he could take all that ugliness and replace it with himself and he can give us hope in that transformation process. And I've heard some who say, well, Jesus just doesn't work. I've tried Jesus. It didn't do anything for me. But let me tell you something. Jesus Christ receives and he cleanses those, first of all, who come to him. And that is a moment. When we come to Jesus, that is a moment. A miraculous moment, but it's a moment. Getting saved is a moment. The new birth is a moment. Just like natural birth happens in a moment of time. But on the other side of natural birth, there's a lifetime of growth that takes place. Spiritual birth happens in a moment of time. But after that moment comes a process. And the process, as we will see in the life of Peter, involved many years and many different situations where Peter was constantly being exposed to who he was 
so that he would recognize and admit those areas of weakness in which he needed divine help poured into his soul so he could change from the inside out. And I think that's why God sometimes doesn't seem to change us. And I've thought about this a lot because I've known people who have cried to God and said, God, help me only to go out and commit the same sin or even the same crime again. Usually it's because there are pockets of resistance in our lives that we have been unwilling to face or admit. And because of that, whether you call it dishonesty or stubbornness or fear of letting go, whatever that looks like for you, we repeat that same sin over and over and over. And if we really want Christ to change us and to make us different, We need to open our life to him in total transparency and admit who we really are so that then he can make us who we should really be. But when that authenticity is not there, we blame God and say, it's his fault. He doesn't have the power to change me. So here's the question. What is your name that needs to be changed? What is your name that needs to be changed? Maybe your name is worry. And if you're a believer and you struggle with worry, do you know what you need to do? You need to repent of your worry and treat it just like you would any other sin. You see, it's not enough to say, God, help me to not worry. It is, it's when we come and we say, God, my worry means I'm not trusting you. This is sin. And my name is worry. What Jesus can then say is, I'm going to rename you and call you peace. Maybe somebody else who says, my name is addiction. Jesus said that the minute you begin to get very honest and give all the pieces, the broken pieces of your life and all the things that have caused those addictions to him, you can finally come clean in total transparency before God. It is then that Jesus can say, I'm going to rename rename you and your name is going to be victory. Somebody else says, my name is rejection. All that I ever received from my parents and society is rejection and hurt and pain. I don't feel as if I belong. And Jesus is saying, you come to me and you let me change you. And let's deal with all the bitterness you're holding on to that reinforces that rejection. And I will give you a new name and it will be acceptance and you will be loved. Maybe there's someone who says, my name is bitter. You're angry with God. You're angry at circumstances. You're angry with people who have wronged you, and you're going to hold on to that in your soul. Admit it to Jesus today. Repent of your bitterness. Say, Jesus, I am bitter. I could do nothing about it. I've thought about the same things over and over and over again. It's growing inside me. That same bitterness continues to boil in my spirit. Jesus, there's nothing I can do, and this is my name. And Jesus says, I'm going to change your name, and I'm going to call you freedom. Somebody else says, my name is fear. You know exactly what you're supposed to be doing, but you're scared because you're being intimidated by others. You're intimidated by your circumstances, intimidated by your insecurities. Tell Jesus, say, Jesus, my name is fear, and Christ can change you, and he can say, I'm going to give you a new name, and the new name is courage. You can do it with me. Last but not least, there may be somebody who says, my name is guilt. I'm flooded with guilt. And there's a fine line between guilt and conviction. They're both having to do with past mistakes, lapses in judgment, sin. The main difference is that guilt comes from the enemy, and it drives us further from God. 
Conviction comes from the Holy Spirit and drives you towards God. Some of you are buried in guilt and you feel unworthy. And here's the thing. God knows you're unworthy. That's why Jesus came. Your name may be guilt, but Jesus says, I will change your name to clean. Christ can do it. But what he is waiting for us to do is to admit to him who we are so that he can transform us into whom we should be. Jesus can change you. He knows who you are. He's got you pegged. You're not a mystery to Jesus. He knows what you can become, and he wants to give you a new name. Revelation 2, verse 17 says, To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven, and I will give to each one a white stone, and on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. We all have a new name waiting for us. There are some of you who are seriously struggling in the depths of your soul right now. Nobody knows your need. Nobody knows what you've been through. Nobody knows the hurt and the pain and the agony and the battle that's going on inside. Nobody knows. And the reason they don't is because you feel that if you told them, they just couldn't understand. Jesus says, tell me who you are. What is your name? And Jesus says, you are but you will be. You are, but you will be. I want to talk to, for a minute to those who have been in church their entire lives. And so some of you sitting here this morning, I'm not saying everybody falls into this category, but some people who've been in church their entire lives, they think a message like this has nothing for them because they learned about salvation a long time ago. I heard about that when I was in Sunday school. The name John Wesley is a very famous name in church history. A great revivalist in England. But when he came here to America, he was preaching to tribes of Native Americans in Georgia, and he was not having results at all. He was just being shut down. He wanted to see them changed, and nobody was being changed. It was just, a, in his mind, a complete waste of time. And on the way back to England on a boat, when they came across this big storm and the people with him on the boat were were believers and they were singing songs and they were worshiping the Lord and he was terrified. And Wesley said to them, are you not afraid to die? And they said, thank God the answer is no. And he began to see that they had something that he did not have. And he went back to England disillusioned, seeking peace and transformation, seeking something. And he walked into a church where Luther's preface to the book of Romans was being read in the church. And while it was being read, something happened to John Wesley. And he truly believed. And he, his, in his words, his heart was strangely warmed. And Wesley, the man who had been preaching to people that they should be converted, was finally himself converted. John Wesley got saved that day. Prior to that, he had a whole lot of knowledge about who Jesus is and what the scriptures say and what they could do. And he had imparted that knowledge to thousands of people and see God transform their lives. But that day, John Wesley experienced it for himself. Some of you have learned about Jesus, but you've never met Jesus. Some of you know more about how to do church than you do about how to have a relationship with the Lord of the church. Some of you have talked to others about Jesus, but still need to let him give you a new name. Some of you need to say this morning, Jesus, you know who I am, 
and I admit who I am. And in this moment, I believe. I trust you fully. I receive you into my life and heart. And that's for those of you who never truly received Christ. For those of you who have, but you've been refusing to let go of some things in your life, it's time for you to admit who you are today, authentically, honestly, and say, Jesus, no matter what it costs, change me. And then hear the words, you are, but you will be spoken by somebody who can make the difference in your life. Let's pray. Before I pray, I just want to ask, there, there may be someone here today who has never truly met Jesus. You've never asked him into your heart. You've never asked him to forgive you for the things you've done, at least not in a way where you authentically came and you authentically believed. Maybe you've been trapped in a John Wesley loop where you, you, you're surrounded by God and church stuff all the time, but it's never truly become real to you. Jesus wants to set you free today. He wants to make it real in your life. Maybe this is newer to you, and you say, okay, this is what I need. This is what I need to do, and Jesus wants to transform your life today. So I just want to ask, if you're here this morning and you would say, I want to begin a relationship with Jesus in a meaningful way today. I want to feel that, like John Wesley said, I want to feel my heart strangely warmed as I make that decision to follow Jesus if you're here, if you just be honest with God and I know who I'm praying for, would you just lift your hand quickly and say, yeah, pray for me because I want that change in my life. Okay. There are others you, you know Jesus, but you have been holding back from letting him know you fully. And my challenge to you is just tell him where you're at today. Is your name anxiety? Is your name fear? Is your name anger? Tell Jesus your name and ask him to give you a new one this morning. Let God speak life into your life today. And so, God, we need an outpouring of your Holy Spirit today. Because we need lives that are lived miraculously by your power. In and of my own strength, I can do nothing. But, Jesus, with you, there is nothing I cannot do. We desperately need, God, to be followers of Jesus who have experienced the transformation that only Christ can bring to us. And so, God, we open our lives to you in this moment and say, Jesus, know us. Know us fully. We're holding nothing back. Come, change us. Give us the grace to be honest with ourselves and with you and then redefine who we are today. I pray, God, that you would speak a new name over people in this room this morning. People who have been carrying negativity, people who have been carrying anxiety and worry and fear and, and lying and all sorts of junk that doesn't belong in the heart of a follower of Jesus. They've been carrying it around for so long. And Jesus, as they just right now in this moment say, Jesus, this is who I am and I need you to fix it. 
God, I pray that you would speak a new name over them this morning. Holy Spirit, come into their life in power right now and begin a new work. God, that that process that we're talking about, that we meet you and then there's a lifelong process of becoming more like Jesus. God, that's what discipleship is. And I pray, God, that you would move us further in that discipleship journey right now in this moment. Let this be another mile marker moment in the lives of some of us this morning as you give us a new name. You give us a hope for the future. You give us a new day. God, that today would look different than yesterday did. This afternoon would look different than this morning did. That, God, you would change us by the power of the Holy Spirit. We want to be different people when we walk out that door this morning. We want to be who you say we are. And so, God, I pray that you would speak that into our lives this morning. God, as we process this message and we... We spend time in prayer about it, and we we get on our knees. Lord, I pray that as we get home tonight, and maybe we go into our prayer closet, and we spend some time with you, Lord, would you speak to us clearly? Let us hear the name, let us receive the name, and let us live into the new normal that you have defined for each one of us. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.